0: Welcome to Globally Speaking, a podcast about connecting with global audiences. Globally Speaking is designed to explore the challenges involved in breaking down language and communication barriers. Our hosts and guests, thought leaders and industry experts discuss their experiences on a range of topics relating to content, communication, and customer engagement. Welcome to today's episode. Hello, I'm Andrew Thomas, your host for this episode of the Globally Speaking Podcast. And today I have the great pleasure of being joined by Maria Schnell, and she is the Chief Language Officer for RWS. And I I actually want to get into that title at some point during this conversation, because I think it's a fascinating title and one that's really interesting for, I think, both our industry and maybe for... uh, other companies out there. But today we're going to talk about, we're really going to dive deep into this topic that we've been discussing for the last couple of episodes around unlocking global understanding. And specifically, we're going to talk a little bit about companies that are going into new markets, maybe the uh, the challenges of going into those new markets, some of the things that they need to think about and consider in order for them to you know, find success, right? But first and foremost, I always ask the guests to kind of introduce themselves and give them a little background for how they came to be here and their particular role and how they relate to the localization industry. So with that, I'd like to turn it over to you, Maria, and introduce yourself to our audience.
1: Thank you. The name is Maria Schnell, obviously. I'm a studied translator. I studied. Um, I'm a studied finance translator for Portuguese and Spanish. And I joined RWS in 2006 as a project manager. Then worked myself up through um, a mix of commercial and operational role, and ultimately ended up in what is my current role as a chief language officer, managing all of the production teams in AWS, all of the production teams defined as everybody who produces language. So that's a whole lot of in-house translators, um, about um, 2000 in-house translators, several hundred uh, localization specialists. So that's um, the people that do localization engineering, that lay out translated files, that essentially organize functional and linguistic testing of localized software applications, even in some instances, localized hardware, pre-release devices, um, and the teams that do anything around audio-video production, so subtitling, voiceover, transcription, etc. And then, uh, of course, our Supply chain team that essentially organizes the collaboration between our in house linguists and our in house teams and our external partners out there in the language industry.
0: That sounds like a pretty large remit and a a large, complicated group, given that they do all of the production of language. (laughs) I guess that explains the title of chief language officer, but I, I think there's a lot of companies out there that obviously. You know, I don't know if RWS is the only company that has a CLO, but uh, it, it's, it's such an interesting title. I wonder if you could just take a moment to talk about why it's or why it was important for at least us at RWS, but maybe also for other companies to consider having somebody with that title, with your title, at the executive level. Do you feel comfortable weighing in on that?
1: I can. I think the reason why is, in a nutshell, because it is part of our DNA. To work with comparatively large in-house translation teams, that still is um, a little bit unusual in this industry. We're a little bit of the pink unicorn of this industry, uh, with that in-house translation team. The benefit that that brings to us is that we are materially closer to the language market than most of our competitors. Materially closer, defined as we do have our linguists sit in market, um, in native speakers sitting in the market of their um, native language with truly deep language and cultural expertise. And that is what makes us unique. And is definitely something that brings us all sorts of benefits um, from a scalability, quality, uh, et cetera, perspective. But it's something that makes us very, very valuable to our clients, because there's a, a number of things that we can explain that we can explain to our clients as they enter new markets. That's something that. We always knew that, but that has become a lot more relevant for us in the last couple of years as we've seen more and more of our clients go truly, truly global. And in some instances, going truly, truly global means going deeply, deeply local. (laughs) And having a partner um, that helps you understand what you need to do to go deeply, deeply local is a, a genuine value for our clients. So that's why we felt it is a valuable strategic investment for us as an organization to have something like um chief language officer at an exec level. I think that's that how it came about.
0: Yeah, and I think that's great. And I, I mean, of course, as somebody who's been in the localization industry for quite a while as, as well, I, I love it. I think um, obviously not all companies would elevate language to that level, but I think I think we all know that the higher up language is considered at uh, an organizational level more often than not, the better results that that company has in reaching those customers in all of those various markets. But you mentioned going truly global and going deep, deep local. I think that's a great example of what we want to talk about today. Could you maybe give us an example of a client, You know whether or not you can name who they are, but could you tell us a little story about what that means for the audience to kind of contextualize it for them? What does it mean to go truly deep?
1: We have uh, more and more clients, uh, particularly um, actually the pharma industry, but it doesn't only apply to the pharma industry, who are starting to really put some thought into who actually is their target group. Frankly, the longer I think about it, the more it's actually relevant for more and more customers outside of the pharma industry so let's park the farmer comment for a moment sure if i think back to when i started in localization which was um 2006 so a very long time ago i did have loads of my german customers at the time who were essentially saying okay let's localize into spanish and um, let's take european spanish that will be good enough for anybody that actually speaks (laughs) any spanish (laughs) that is a value for money uh (laughs) assessment that you can make, but it's a value for money assessment that less and less of our clients actually think is adequate. So
0: yeah, I'm laughing, by the way, because as an American, I already know, like, you know, (laughs) you try European Spanish over here, and people are going to look at you funny, but yeah, please continue.
1: Correct. It's actually particularly funny if you think about um, high tech and and computer terminology, European Spanish actually truly localizes that into Spanish. So um, like the term for mouse is like the animal um in, in Europe,
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, while it is
1: actually mouse in in most of Latin America. so it it feels um essentially weird to have a rodent show up in your user manual, for example, or in your embedded manual. <laughs> so most of our customers are starting to actually think about who do they who do they compete against and who do they compete for and have started realizing. And that is very true. For um, retail customers, very true for high-tech customers, absolutely very, very, very true for um, pharma customers. They have noticed that they need to be closer to their customers and um, to their clients. And at the end of the day, um, that means that if you think about localizing into Spanish, you need to start thinking about which markets you are localizing into. And depending on where you sit um, or where the the document or the content that you want to translate sits in the customer in life cycle, (laughs) you also need to think about whose attention you want to attract. Mm. So I don't know, let's say you want to buy, you want to sell into Latin America. Will you really get people's attention if, if it's obvious that you don't sound local? More and more consumers are going for a native experience. So, um, as opposed to an obviously localized experience, so they would probably try to essentially look for information that sounds like home to them. uh, If that makes sense?
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely.
1: So, that is definitely something that we're seeing in the high tech industry, in the retail, in amongst our retail clients for their pre sales material, that they're trying to be as local as possible to the target groups that they're thinking about. And sometimes local even can mean subcultural. That is something that our high-tech clients, for example, are taking extremely seriously, (laughs) defined as we are now increasingly getting um, briefings, creative briefings on the target group for this device or this application is, um, I don't know, a hipster, and <laughs> yeah. they are actively seeking for advice, A, does a hipster exist in this culture? Right. And it's, so, oh, what does this hipster do in this culture? Because, um, for example, an Asian hipster for, may be a lot less... Uh, thinking about their beard, if they're male, and uh, a European hipster, for example. Stupid example, but a valid example. So questions like, like that come up. So you need to do a lot more research around what that means, etc. So in an attempt to, to essentially make their pre-sales material grab the attention of people that are drowning in information, um, our clients are definitely going um, more and more local. Yeah. Going back to the pharma example, In those um, use cases, it's actually about reaching more and more patients and making sure that patients truly understand the medication that they're about to take, for example. Many of the pharma clients are now starting to go truly native, defined as um, we have never seen as much Native American language translation um, coming our way as we have this year. We are definitely seeing a huge boost of um, native Canadian languages as well, Inuktitut for example, to make sure that you truly, truly are being understood for, by the patients whose life may depend on the accurate usage of a, a certain medication.
0: And, and am I correct in the assumption that, like in the case of retail, I've always talked about you know, marketers, whether they know it or not, actually intuitively understand localization because we think about... Mm-hmm different personas within a particular language speaking audience and targeting them differently. So it makes sense that in retail, they're really focused on hyper-localization in order to let their uh, products that they're selling Mm -hmm. either stand out or at least not look foreign. Mm -hmm. Uh, But in the case of pharmaceuticals, is it obviously there's a huge focus in making sure that they provide good uh, standard of care for the patients mm-hmm. and that they're providing good information. How much of that is being driven, though, by regulation from governments and government oversight? Because I know, at least here in the US, there's plenty of uh, rules and regulations around how much content needs to be in a given language if there is a certain percentage of a population in a region that speaks that language. You know, What's the mix there on the pharmaceutical side?
1: I can definitely not express it in percentages just to manage your expectations. But what what we can clearly see, specifically on the Canadian market, but also on the US market, is that many of our clients are going beyond what the regulation actually expects them to do. Um, So we are seeing more um, Native American and Native Canadian languages being localized that aren't necessarily falling under legal requirements. So um, we can definitely see that uh, the pharmaceutical industry is trying, or generally generally the life science um, industry is trying to be a lot more inclusive um, of all potential clients or patients.
0: Particularly when it comes to health, it's interesting because that's one of those areas where I would imagine lots of cultural values come into play about what you can and can't talk about and how you talk about certain sensitive subjects.
1: It actually doesn't only matter in pharmaceutical and life science contexts. Um, It it absolutely does there. Uh, I can give you a couple of um, examples there. Source material very often essentially assumes uh, specific parts of the healthcare systems to work in a certain way. The moment you go very, very native, uh, you will potentially underestimate um, how hard access to certain um, healthcare facilities, for example, is. For some of those communities, so um, it it is quite obvious that your linguists will then feed back to you. This is something that is out of reach. We need to adapt the source here. That happens quite regularly there, but it also is actually very relevant for other areas. That's one of the things that I've been observing um, as of lately. A lot. We also have high tech customers starting to think about post sales more <laughs> and being very relevant in post sales more. Um, that's one of the things that we see, for example. Uh, More and more clients are asking for services like UX testing, uh, user experience testing. And one of the things that we stumbled upon there is, for example, Japanese um, users navigate software dialogues very differently from Western users. That um, was an unexpected um, discovery for some of our clients. So just, just making it clear as well that essentially the way we go about clicking around software is far from being uniform across the globe and is something that you can and increasingly should think about because more and more high tech organizations are thinking about that as you design your products so localization goes beyond yeah yeah just make the text sound <laughs> local it's also about making visuals and the whole experience feel local
0: yeah and i think that's interesting because as you mentioned for the folks that are maybe newer to thinking about localization, it kind of harkens back to, you mentioned your, the early days of just translating into European Spanish. I think a lot of people without experience in this industry make the incorrect assume, assumption that language equals location, right? And what you're really describing is the fact that you language is, is just the start of it. And then there are all of these other layers that get more and more local that you have to think about. When you think about those layers and thinking about culture and context, beyond translating into the correct local variation of a language, so, you know, Mexican Spanish for Mexico instead of European Spanish, um, for example, what other cultural layers? Are there beyond, I mean, you mentioned the, you know, the order in which people look at software and kind of traverse a, a product experience. What are some of the other cultural layers that are considered by our organization when advising these companies on how to go to market?
1: There is essentially the, the macro context of a culture that is super relevant. We do work for a couple of clients um, that um, essentially sell sports gear. If you look at the language that most of those um, clients are using, it's all very competitive um, and very, very action driven. (laughs) Mm. Um, There are cultures out there where competitiveness is actually um, a negative thing. (laughs) Um, We have that um, we have that issue. um, Well, it's not really an issue. It's just a fact. Uh, We have that um, situation in Thailand, for example. Thailand is a country that whole area and many countries in Southeast Asia. are cultures that are very harmony driven
0: yeah community over the individual Community over the individual
1: person. but also everything right. needs to be in balance um so
0: mm.
1: going about it with very competitive uh, language beat your neighbor is not really something um, beat your neighbor in competition by the way <laughs> it's not really something that will yep. fly it will essentially not only not fly it will be offensive
0: we'll turn them off
1: correct so um, this is the, the macro context. You need to understand the principles, um, the philosoph- philosophical principles, almost uh, that are underlying in that culture to be um, to be able to assess whether something is appropriate or not. However, it's it's also about understanding um, essentially the ecosystem that a, a product or the local ecosystem that a product or an application may be used at, which has may be used within, which has pretty can have pretty drastic implications for example um in northern and central europe color schemes in uh, software can be quite subdued and and very boring <laughs> let's just say let's just <laughs> say boring um that will be totally yep. inappropriate and absolutely a turn-off in other cultures because um because nothing is subdued in those cultures so you also need to think about um, the colors that you use. You need to think about, and that's something that we started looking into um, quite a lot lately with some of our clients. Should you actually use text or should you use emojis, for example? Right. Let's start thinking about nonverbal communication and non-verbal interaction with the consumer, with whoever consumes that that content. Also thinking about, again, in which ecosystem will that... Content be consumed technically, um, so it's understanding really the consumer of whatever product, service, application, whatever, in the here and now, in that reality, in that in that market, and it goes much much deeper than just language. It includes color schemes, it includes uh, pictures, it's it includes sound. Sound opens up a whole new um, can of worms. Because um, whatever you think is perceived as a pleasant voice in the West is probably not perceived as a pleasant voice anywhere else. So this Mm -hmm. is the kind of stuff that you need to think about and that our clients are increasingly thinking about.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I've even heard a couple of examples recently from some various events that I've participated in, you know, World and Global Sake, and there's been some folks talking about these type of issues. And, you know, another one that has come up a lot recently has been issues around accessibility Correct. and thinking about how that is yet another layer of context but also culture depending mm-hmm. on what uh, audience you're you're trying to reach and how you're trying to reach them mm-hmm. it's striking to me a lot of the parallels that issues around accessibility have with issues around localization and translation really like as you say thinking through how the End recipient, whoever they may be, of whatever the company is trying to communicate, how they will actually experience the thing that is trying to be communicated, and there's so many layers to it.
1: For me, that whole topic of accessibility is is fascinating because it feels uh, like you're <laughs> you're suddenly discovering a brand new language universe.
0: It, it is another language, right? That's what I think too. Yeah, please. <laughs>
1: Also, because most people assume there is one sign language, there isn't one sign right. language. Every single right. every single country has at least uh, at least one sign language. Right. One,
0: if not more than Correct. one. Right.
1: So um, uh, we do get a lot of requests where people come our way and go, "Yeah, I want to have this localized into sign language," uh, and then are puzzled by us asking which one. Like, who is your target? <laughs>
0: Yeah, and there's a lot of education to be had there. It feels like they're having conversations, the same conversations that, as you mentioned there, that we're having around accessibility now are the conversations that I remember with localization. Yep. You know, you said 2006, I was in it like in, what, 99 or something. So, you know, similar period of time. And there was still a lot of, when I got in, Unicode had really literally just become a thing. <laughs> I can remember having the conversation with uh, a web team on why we needed to move away from uh, region-specific web page encodings to UTF-8 or UTF-16, and you know, having those kinds of conversations. Which I'm glad we've, as an industry, moved past. I mean, I know it's still there, but it's it's pretty well baked in now. But uh, it just it reminds me the similar kinds of. Uh, the lack of understanding, if you will. So going back to our theme of unlocking global understanding, half of the challenge is just, I would imagine, is literally just educating our clients. What's the status of that these days? You mentioned that you've got some clients who are already wanting to go much deeper locally. I would imagine that those are the more sophisticated clients. Having been in this industry for as long as you have, Where do you think things stand today in the level of maturity that clients have when it comes to localization and and going global and and thinking about that? Have you seen a shift or is it about the same as always?
1: I think from my point of view, and that's maybe because I'm just too long in this industry right now, everything (laughs) is constantly shifting. So I keep making the joke that everything changes in the localization industry every three months. uh, And it's unfortunately pretty pretty true, actually. Everything is constantly shifting. And I can see that our clients in different parts, our clients, depending on where their lived reality is, are on different stages of one spectrum. Uh, and where they are in on that spectrum has a lot to do who their clients are uh, and what the risk profile in that industry is. So you can't really say that um, ooh, clients have moved on. Everybody is in a different, in a different phase of the same range. Uh, the longer I look at it. There is definitely um, a lot of clients that are unbelievably mature in the way they think about localization, defined as very, very clear understanding of what they want, very, very clear understanding and very strong influence on how to get there Mm. and very clear understanding on the 25,000 things to avoid. (laughs) One of the things that I can see shift in that group is we are starting to think differently about language quality. Defined as this industry has by design, because we're all linguists at the end of the day, uh, this linguist has uh, this industry has by design a very academic definition of quality. Defined as um, quality is good if you have less than X typos, less than X grammar um, mistakes, and less than X right. um, terminology mistakes. Yeah. That is still relevant, but we are increasingly. Seeing um, clients start having different conversations with us to find as um, what does good quality actually do for me? Um, that is a question that is old, as old as this industry probably, because everybody at some point in time, uh, particularly in-house localization departments, had to justify their existence. So being able to articulate. That value better is a problem that is really very old. However, it feels like we're getting closer to actually being able to properly answer that question because there is a lot more data out there, uh, a lot more data to find. As we 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 are now um, technically in a position to actually articulate, correlate uh, quality data to real business facts. How much more? How many more leads does it generate to have a good translation? What does a good translation under those circumstances look like because right. like if you're really really grown up about quality there are things that matter more in some contexts than others like for example if you're if you think about pre-sales content where you just want to generate uh, attention okay
0: yep yep
1: does it really have to be super accurate and does it really have to have the most eye-wateringly correct grammar on the planet
0: well and in fact to your point that could be a detriment depending on who your audience is
1: Exactly, exactly. So it's, it's more about actually understanding what your, uh, what your user base cares about. And maybe your user base doesn't really care about grammar and spelling, but does care about you knowing the latest pun that is relevant to that subculture at this point in time in the here and now. Being able to express in your quality model that uh, getting the following three criteria, I don't know, terminology, relevance, uh, something else, Right, will bring you more leads is something that we're really, really close to doing. It's something that we have, in fact, started building with some of our clients. Yeah, and it's not just about does it generate more leads. It's also answering question: Does good localization quality make the user self-sufficient? For example.
0: Yeah, and it's like the focus is on the quality of the outcome, not the linguistic accuracy of the translation. And I think that's such a great shift. I mean, I, I'm. I'm a big fan of that person.
1: I think people are starting to realize that good localization brings very concrete, hands-on business benefits. Again, mm. more sales, okay, that's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, more leads, no-brainer. But again, more user self-sufficiency. Users are able to self-service and you need to, because your knowledge base, for example, is really helpful. Or one of the examples that we we had with one client, less product returns because potential new buyers understand the user reviews and can actually find out from the user reviews more reliably whether they should buy one size bigger or one size smaller being able to articulate that by correlating linguistic quality data with business data is something that is now putting us in a position that we can finally articulate with and for our clients what value we bring which is groundbreaking for our industry
0: yeah it's a great it's a great way to show the value that the industry brings beyond Mere you know, I say merely, it's obviously not a small thing, but you know, beyond merely transforming content from one language to another, it's literally elevating it to the discussion of what impact does it have on your business. And I think that's so critical for the industry because when you don't do that, it's just perceived as a cost of doing business. There's not there's not a perception of value for that, right? So Correct. that's pretty exciting that you're able to now. Connect those data dots, um which, for the longest time, have been very disconnected. Am I correct in assuming that that's achievable because of technology?
1: That is achievable because of technology, and it's but it's it takes a certain kind of client to think that way, because you ultimately need to essentially put data streams together. And that's not necessarily uh, something that all organizations are ready to do, uh, like essentially have a data warehouse full of linguistic data plus marketing data plus telemetry data um, from from users using your product, and investing in, in ultimately data architects and data analysts um, to get there. But it's, it's definitely something that is out there and that is being worked on and that is um, showing us exciting results.
0: And I can imagine that once all of that wiring is in place and all that data is pulled together in a warehouse, that it can come full circle back to this larger conversation we're having around culture and context, because a lot of times you have to make some assumptions and it sounds like with our in-house teams, we can provide very educated assumptions in, in a lot of regards, but it's there, that's still no replacement for how those our clients customers actually interact with them once the translations and the localizations are out there once they get their hands on the whatever the end result is and then you get to see how they're interacting and then make adjustments right correct, correct. so
1: so that that is ultimately the point if you Given we have our in-house teams, we do collect a lot more performance, like language performance data uh, defined as how are we doing on terminology? How do we do? How are we doing on style, grammar, spelling, blah, 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 than anybody else out there? Being able to connect that to the business data actually allows you over time. And that's what we've definitely seen to see, okay in this market and this sub region, if we do that, it actually works and it triggers the results that the client wants to see, the results in lead generation, for example. If you do the same in, I don't know, the neighboring region, it brings you nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. uh, being able to have essentially that a constant flow of data, being able to analyze that and continuously, continuously optimize is something where we definitely see it has become quite easy to Continuously meet or exceed um, client SLAs on quality output. Just because you know what you need to do.
0: Oh right, yeah. Data can actually give you, you know, show you the direction to go in, or oftentimes at least give you pointers on where to experiment, right? Because right. sometimes you don't. Again, speaking as a as a marketer, and you know that we've marketing has gone through the last several years a massive amount of digital transformation with the same desire of being able to track all the data from everything that we put out there in just one language to be able to see what kind of impact it has and you know oftentimes it is a guessing game and the data sometimes doesn't even answer you know sometimes there's not a direct answer for what the data is telling you you just the data might be telling you that you haven't dialed it up enough or that you're going in the wrong direction Either answer could be true, but at least you know from the data that you've got a couple of different experiments that you can try that can answer conclusively which way you should be going. And so I think that's exciting.
1: At the end of the day, the, what data gives you is something is wrong. Uh, and if, you know, right. if yeah. you know what you're doing, which we do because we have all of that in-house quality data, if you know what you're doing, what you then ultimately need to do is nothing but a almost a scientific exercise where you just start excluding root potential root causes until you hit the point where you have hit the root cause and then you just resolve that and you learn an unbelievable amount throughout those continuous improvement cycles. It's it's really, really exciting. I must say though that I'm mildly data obsessed. So this stuff excites me and it does other
0: people. Well I it excites me too but the one of the things that I was thinking that's such an interesting dichotomy here is that you know You talked at the very beginning about companies wanting to go truly deep local and cultural context matters so much there. And the cultural context is oftentimes so emotional, right? It's not about what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. Mm -hmm. And does it emotionally resonate for whatever reason with the audience? And then on the other hand, you've got this very kind of scientific data set and data driven approach and it's just fascinating to me that those two things actually intersect like in order to deliver these hyper local deeply emotionally resonant messages you actually need the data that tells you that points you to the to the requirement for that effort right because everybody not everybody's going to make the effort to go deep local unless they see the data that points out you know if we do this we will actually achieve better success on whatever our goal happens to be.
1: Correct. And it's always a mix of a numbers game and an emotional game. Like, um, as as my team keeps saying, nobody loves a robot. So you you, you (laughs) have to always put essentially all of the black and white things in, in one bucket and then all of the emotional things in one bucket and work through them. And also listen to the markets. It's one of the things that I enjoy the most actually sitting down with our linguists and just asking the question, like, I, I genuinely don't understand why you struggle here. Can you please take the hand puppets out and explain it to me? Um, that is always an enriching experience. That's, that's how I stumbled upon sports gear being um, tough uh, for Thai linguists. Uh, right. Because my, my, my team, I sat down with my team in Thailand and they told me that that is the type of contact that they struggle with most. And I essentially sat down and went in my head, Really? socks promotions because like it's that for us <laughs> predominantly predominantly easy content. But then they explained the cultural context to me. And that was for me at the time, a real game changer because it it completely changed um, the conversation with the client as well. So it is a mix of uh, black and white and then all the nuances and you, you can't get those nuances. If you don't have somebody that lives in that reality and explains to you and is able to actually explain to somebody who doesn't live in that reality why that matters. One of the things that we had um, with with a client a couple of uh one of the conversations that we had with a client a couple of years ago, uh, a client who essentially was trying to pitch to the German market a device that would have required that you install a, a compressor outside of your at the outside of your house. And our translators at the time pushed back and said, like, I'm sorry, but that's a total no go in Germany. And the client uh essentially uh, looked at us and went uh, what like why <laughs> explain that again right and uh the translators were kind enough to essentially just send us a presentation full of pictures on how uh german neighborhoods look like where essentially everybody builds little houses for their dustbins and nobody um uh, has um like satellite dishes <laughs> at the outside of their house right so all the surfaces are clean um
0: Right. It would be too garish to have this device out in the open. People right. think that right.
1: essentially that that makes your house less valuable.
0: <laughs> right. Uh, so
1: just making statements like that, that's not necessarily something that is super obvious if you haven't been in that market before. So essentially um, building communication around and you can take exciting, you can take your compressor and put it at the outside of your house is something that would definitely not sell, It actually detect German customers.
0: <laughs> right, because in Germany, it would be like, you can make your house uglier, is what <laughs> they would be saying. Oh, that's hilarious. I um, It's funny, too, though, but when I, one of the examples I heard in an event that I was on, I thought was really fascinating, because even when companies correctly identify an issue for a particular lo- lo- location or, or market, they still oftentimes fall into the trap that you're describing, where they they may have a correctly identified the local issue, but they haven't correctly identified how to speak about it culturally. Because the example that I heard was for a um, a mattress company selling, wanting to enter into the Japanese market, and. Everybody knows that Japanese people don't get enough sleep. Right? They they get very little sleep uh, for the hours that they work and just being awake and and doing things throughout the day. And they started off with a pitch that was basically pointing this out that you know people were falling asleep on the train and that they weren't getting enough sleep and that that if you got this mat you know get this mattress because you'll get more sleep. And of course, they very quickly realized that. Culturally, that's not really acceptable. That, you know, there is a reason that the culture works the way that it works. And it's not really acceptable to try to tell people to get more sleep. And so they very quickly had to pivot to quality of sleep, what became the new message, right? And as soon as they pivoted to quality of sleep, they got a lot more success, right? Correct. You know, when you mentioned the German uh, example that you just uh, shared with us, So many companies probably don't expect, or in the past have not expected, a language service provider to give them this kind of insight, right? Like it's, you know, so much of our industry is transactional.
1: Even particularly desired, because as you say, so much of it is transactional and everything happens under time pressure. So Mm. that's one of the things that we've struggled with in the last couple of years as uh, continuous localization specifically materially accelerated the industry. It stopped being desire to actually get that kind of feedback. And we're starting to see um, clients to think differently about the different content that they publish and starting to segment um, their content types and be clear about for this stuff, (laughs) pre-sales very often, I do actually want feedback. I do actually want observations like that because not everything is obvious. Um, It's, as you say, it's so easy to just assume that (laughs) uh, specific themes are, Universal. We had that um, in the pandemic, where where everybody assumed that people were right. wearing uh, sweatpants for for very specific universal use cases. They we had one client that actually called it universal use cases, <laughs> and at least one of them was absolutely non-universal um, and very U.S. based, like uh, wearing uh, sweatpants for home improvement projects. Right. Again, in Germany, that is. <laughs> That is uh, considered unsafe gear, because you might like you should have safety, you should wear safety trousers. <laughs> uh, in okay. Japan, nobody did actually do uh, home home improvement projects in the pandemic because like most of them didn't have a garage or the space uh, to do those home improvement projects. And so or, for example, another thing which isn't pandemic related. Retail um client of ours essentially had as one of the selling arguments for um for an interior design element, this will make your neighbor's jelly uh, jealous sorry no.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right um, jelly yep I got it
1: <laughs> and uh, our French team fed back like we really don't care what our neighbors think. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Of course. I, that's such a French thing to say. I love it. Um. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, but that stuff is, is kind of, it, it may sound irrelevant, but I mean, it like, if this is your only argument, which was very kindly and much more professionally put, uh, what our translators fed, fed back to us, if this is your only argument, I'm, I'm sorry, it doesn't sell enough on the French market. And that's very valuable. It's not something that you, most people have on their radar radar, like the big stereotypes. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, De facto, a culture goes so much deeper and in such shocking levels of detail. <laughs> Going back to the emoji thing, yeah, I would have thought that in the age of everybody has an iPhone, uh, everybody uses the same emojis. Absolutely not.
0: Oh no! Yeah,
1: <laughs> like um, there is uh, most of the Asian countries use very different express their emotions different th- th- differently through emojis. Uh, the same emoji means like. 12 different things in in other cultures. And you can't even, as always, by the way, put all of Asia into one bucket and not even all one Asian country into one bucket.
0: Maria, I can't, I mean, even within one language, like the emojis I use as a 40-something man is extremely different than the emojis that teenagers use or my kid who's in his 20s uses, right? Like it's even different... I would imagine even beyond just Correct. countries and 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 language, right? It's, it goes back to that point about hyper local. It's you know I'm thinking about different personas, even. But Correct. yeah, <laughs> I know we, we're about to wrap up here. We've got um, we've been talking for quite a while now. I always like to ask uh, anybody that I interview on any particular topic uh, if they can come up with one key takeaway for the audience to make it really useful for the audience listening. Anybody who's Uh, Stuck with us for this whole time. If you could share one piece of advice to anybody out there thinking about how they go to market, how they think about culture and context, what's the one key piece of advice that you would generally offer to folks to think about?
1: I think what has been most valuable for me was to actually talk to people that live in the market that you're trying to target. You don't have to find the, I don't know, one Samoan hipster that may exist to ask (laughs) what a hipster in Samoa looks like. Just ask somebody that lives in Samoa what a hipster looks like and whether a hipster even exists. I think local contact and, 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 and having the ability to actually engage with somebody that lives in a certain region is unbelievably helpful it doesn't matter how much data you analyze and it doesn't matter um, how much you've read about the market the actual truth uh, sits in the people that are supposed to consume the product or application or whatever you're trying to sell or use so talk
0: to people you know it's so funny because again I'll go to the parallels with accessibility because on the sessions that I've been on they have a phrase in in a lot of accessibility discussions where they say you know nothing about us, without us. Hmm. And that idea of incorporating the end user into your pre-planning and your thinking about things, the parallels are endless here. So I think we'll wrap up there. I think that's great advice. I really appreciate your time sharing your thoughts and wisdom with us. And uh, so thank you, Maria. And for the audience, Stay tuned for our next episode where we will continue our thoughts around unlocking global understanding. And uh, thanks for listening.